This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. You know, it has been so long since we've had a discussion about Buddhism here on Common Threads. It just hit me a few weeks ago, and we've been doing so much because religion is in the news on the political scene and in the social scene. And I thought, you know something? We've got to get a Buddhist in here. Uh, to give us uh, an update on on Buddhist uh, culture here in the United States. And I thought of the perfect person, a good friend of mine here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And her name is Shuji Valdine Mintzmeyer. And she is an ordained Dharma-transmitted Soto Zen Buddhist priest in the Katagiri lineage. She first began her Buddhist practice over 35 years ago and was ordained in 2011. She is trained at Mount Shasta, California, in Oregon, in Iowa, and in Fresno, California. She holds a BA in Fine Art and Economics with a minor in Asian Studies and a Master's in Business from the University of Nebraska. A master tailor, Shuji is one of only a few Buddhist priests to create traditional Soto Zen Buddhist priest garments. Shuji has been an entrepreneur most of her professional career. Presently, she is the sole proprietor of Zen Monkwear, a business providing monastic priest garments to international clergy and lay practitioners. Reverend Shuji is currently the head teacher in the Soto Zen Buddhist group Just Sit, right here in Grand Rapids, and also she has a tremendous presence in the interfaith network uh, here in western Michigan. She has been a part of the Interfaith Dialogue Association Speakers Bureau for several years now. And whenever Shuji speaks somewhere, I get uh, rave reviews. Her knowledge of Buddhism is uh, ecumenical and expansive. So welcome to Common Threads, Shuji. Great to be here. Uh, Why don't we start a little bit about you. Let's talk about your spiritual journey, and then we'll, we'll talk about the, the uh, various uh, issues that I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks. Okay. So, so how did you begin? I, I suspect with a name like Mintzmeyer, you weren't born into a Buddhist family. I was born into a good German Lutheran family. And at some point, I think in high school, I started not feeling like the Lutheran Church was uh, it wasn't it wasn't meeting my needs. So being in the early 80s, I got into um, I'll say the earthy, crunchy new age religions and I really liked that and that felt good. but I started noticing that people were going off, on their own a lot and getting into things that they didn't know what they were doing. And I read Alan Watts' The Watercourse Way. 
and it talked about Buddhism as being going like the water, just if a rock gets in your way, move aside. And that book made me really angry. I thought, what is it? You, you know, it seemed awfully passive. And then I went backpacking in Vancouver, BC, and I went to a waterfall, and they had this huge water, huge waterfall called Bridal Falls. And there's a first I was met with a sign saying, "Warning: Pedestrian lookout is closed." And I went, and I thought, "Oh, the waterfall didn't like that pedestrian lookout, so it wiped it out." <laughs> And I noticed on top of the waterfall, there was this huge V where the water had eaten away the cliff. And on the bottom of the cliff, these huge stones. And it's like, oh, the watercourse way can be really powerful too. And then something clicked right then. And I started looking at Buddhism as a spiritual path. And what attracted me was you had to get training to become a Buddhist priest. I couldn't just announce to the world, okay, I'm a high priestess in the Wiccan faith. It's like, as a lot of people I knew were doing, it's like, oh, you, have, oh, is that right? you have no idea what you're talking about. And I kind of liked the way Buddhism had tradition behind it. Yes. yes. And... There are some really strong Wiccans that do very well, and I, that's, that part of my life is still very important in my faith right now. But I am a Buddhist, but I still bring a lot of that into my Buddhism. We've had conversations on this program uh, with other people who, who have talked about the fact that they, they came from something that was somewhat nebulous, oftentimes Mm-hmm. As with you, they start with something that has a very strong tradition, such as your Lutheran Christianity, mm-hmm. and then they move into something because maybe they don't like organization, and they get into you know unorganization, and then they see that they might be missing something, and and as you say, some people thrive in absolutely no organization whatsoever, but but some people yeah they they kind of like it. Uh, like a little bit of, um, they appreciate that what they are doing uh, has a lineage. It goes back. It's yes. time-tested, apparently. Yes. And so this seems to be what happened to you as well. I mean, but you said that what attracted you was, well, you have to train to be a Buddhist priest. There was a lot more than that that attracted me. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it wasn't like why Buddhism is for me, and I'll be a priest. (laughs) I I, no. Um, I'll go back to the idea of water. You put water in a cup; it takes the shape of a cup. You know, the uh, a lot of Buddhist symbol symbology works with water. You know, you can't grab hold of water. You can't take a handful of water. And that's the whole idea of non-clinging. As soon as you try to grab water, your hands are empty. Um, the way that water can be soft and malleable, but it can also be powerful and strong. You can have too much water and flood. You can have not enough water and drought. My spiritual practice 
is trying to find that middle way, that balance, the balance between very structured spiritual practice and the freewheeling, let's go dance naked under the moonlight, which is somewhere between there is where I want to be. Understand. Yeah, which is interesting because Soto Zen, the thing of the uh, type of Zen I practice, the type of Buddhism I practice, it has its roots in the samurai culture. So it, mm-hmm. it is like, it is one of the most rigid It Buddhists. has a martial ambiance, if you will. It, yes, and... Um, and within that practice, I'm trying to find that balance of, okay, where's where does the water flow in this? Where, where can the flow fit with the uh, very, I'll say sometimes harsh, for non-Buddhists to read about Soto Zen, they go, wow. They read about time in Soto Zen monasteries, and it's like, ooh, that's awful. It's like, no, there's, there's, there's a balance there. There's peace and harmony within that. I, I, I have conversations uh, with a lot of people in the interfaith world, and obviously you do as well, and I think that there is this misunderstanding that Eastern paths, not just Buddhism, but Taoism, Hinduism, uh, Sikhism, all of the Asian religions, there's, there's this, uh, this misunderstanding that they are passive. As you said, you mm-hmm. thought Buddhism was very passive. And they think that, well, you know, if you're, if you're from the East, then you got to be Gandhi, right? That, 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 uh, the idea of, as you say, this particular iteration of Buddhism uh, descending from samurai culture, right? to a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. But, but there really is a military, a, a martial it would be a better a word. There is a martial spirit to Buddhism that that people don't always acknowledge or understand. So, so talk yes. a little bit more about that. Um, uh, um, I, it's, that's, that's really hard to put into words. But since we're on the radio, I can't see my hand gestures. I'll try to <laughs> use words better than my hands. You can still use the hands. Use the hands. Just don't. Uh, the hands are going. Them. Yeah, the hands are going. That's great. Um, I'll I'll I'll, I'll uh, describe as as you. No, no. Just the, um, there is. I don't want to say peace, but there's some sort of feeling of relaxation with the rules. Uh, the founder of Soto Zen, A.H. Dogen, wrote The Rules of the Monastery. And you read those and you think, oh my goodness. But it's like you sit in the monastery, you, when the bell rings, you all turn to your right and stand up and bow. And well, you get into a crowded monastery and you suddenly realize it's nice to all turn to the right at the same time, because otherwise you're bumping into knees because we sit on cushions and we sit fairly close. It's like, oh, a lot of his rules are how to live comfortably in a small space with a lot of people. And um, rules on how to get up, how to wash your face, how to brush your teeth, how to use the toilet. Is that right? Yes. And part of that is at the time, uh, 
rural Japan of 1200, a lot of people were sending their young sons to the monastery because there wasn't anything else for them to do. It was more of a occupation than a spiritual. And it's like, we have all these kids coming that don't know how to brush their teeth. So let's have a rule. You get up, you wash your face, and you go by seniority so everybody's not running into the bathroom at the same time. And you hang your clothes on a hook because otherwise you're going to have a bunch of 16-year-old boys throwing towels on the floor. And then the next ones that come in will have to step over the towels. It's all part of how to live in peace and harmony. But so these are the kinds of rules that perhaps aren't necessary for today. I mean, you don't have to abide by those rules no. in your home. Um, one of my students read it and he said, can't I use a toothbrush? Do I have to use a stick? Because he Dogen gives explanations on how long to chew your stick before you can use it as a toothbrush. I said, no, you don't have to use a stick. We have toothpaste. We have toothbrush. Feel free to use a tooth, tooth, toothbrush. Right. But there's other rules. Like he um, has a, one of his uh, things, rules to the head cook, how to handle your food. And I every time I wash my rice, he gives uh, rules on how to wash rice. Wash it three times, and you te- treat every grain of rice as your eyeball. Respect the food. Somebody worked hard to get that food to my table. Of course. And by disrespecting that food, I am disrespecting the rice growers, the people in the plant packaging the rice, the grocery store that I bought the rice from, and um, myself and my partner who work hard to get money to buy that. And then you can go into how that grain of rice, everybody in the earth is working towards bringing that rice. So by respecting that rice, you respect everyone and just... Sure. So it's simply a matter of using common sense. Yes. Uh, uh, for instance, I remember seeing someone on television who was Muslim and they were talking about people who take the Quran literally. And the, the person was saying, well, you know, uh, the Quran, uh, actually, I have, to, uh, I have to think about this. It was either Quran or the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet. So one of, one of the two, but, you know, something that the Muslims would take seriously. They said that after you, uh, using the bathroom, or whatever they used for a bathroom back then, to clean yourself with three smooth stones. Well, as you would advise the student, we do not need a stick anymore. Yeah, Toothbrushes are fine. Charmin beats three smooth stones any day of the week. Yes. So, yeah. And even though I, when I make my rice... I think of Dogen saying, treat every grain of rice with the eyeballs. If something happened that would, like if a glass broke and started throwing stuff at my face, and I could either drop my pot of rice and shed my eyes or keep my rice and lose my sight, I would probably drop the rice and, and protect my eyes. <laughs> well, you're a lousy Buddhist for crying out loud. <laughs> Get and it's like you, you have you have you have to use your brain. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> um there are so many 
denominations, movements, sects of yes. Buddhism. What is it about the Soto tradition that attracted you? Why aren't you a Tibetan? Why aren't you a Sri Lankan Theravadan? All of those uh, uh, choices you could have made, and you made this one. Yeah, one of the things about Buddhism is every place it, Buddhism moves to, it absorbs its um, dominant society. And I grew up, I'll say old-fashioned German Lutherans, because I think the Lutheran Church has changed a lot in the last 40 years. Um, and in some ways, Soto Zen has something something like my old Lutheran church as a child. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, in that same way of rules. <laughs> and I you know and it's it's almost it's comfortable for the me. structure, I understand. Yeah, that. The structure, mm-hmm. the rules. We chant the same thing all the time and in Lutheran church we we had our hymnal we the first 17 pages we do every every week and we didn't have to if you're just joining us you're listening to common threads on WGVU I'm Fred Stella and with me today is Reverend Shuji Valdine Mintzmeyer and we're talking about Buddhism please continue uh, 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 you say that you you sang the first Seven, like 17 pages of the hymnal was the same every week and but it's it's more than just the liturgy it's something um it's like a similar taste like what a similar taste sure and that's and i've always uh loved japanese art japanese dance when i got into japanese spirituality it was yes it just felt like home and you also have a, a an experience in Korean Buddhism, correct? Very little, um, very little. Korean, um, I, going down the different types of Buddhism can be a real rabbit hole that I get lost in. But Korean Buddhism is also Zen, you know. So there's a real familiarity. The Chinese Buddhism, Buddhism there's a lot of Zen. Uh, Japan is more of a Shinto Buddhist. And last year when I was in Japan, I went to a lot of Shinto shrines and a few ceremonies. And it's like, yes, this feels like home. And it's just. But now Shintoism, my understanding is Shinto is separate from Buddhism. Shinto is separate from Buddhism. But, but. <laughs> when I walk into a Shinto shrine in Japan, in northern rural Japan, and say, hi, I'm a Soto Zen, boost, Soto Zen priest from the United States, they are very happy to see me, and we talk like old friends. And it's just like, oh, welcome, and they want to show me their temples and explain what they're doing. And it's like a cousin that they'll welcome into. Sure. And since I'm a female from the United States, I'm like an exotic customer. <laughs> they want to get to know and talk to. So it doesn't feel that different on the surface in an interesting way. 
And and from what I understand, I have a cousin who lives in Japan, and his wife is is Japanese. Mm-hmm. And from what he said, people use both religions. They kind of sort of swing both ways. So if you're going to get married, you go to a Shinto shrine. Am I am I, am I correct? Does that make sense? I don't know enough about Japanese practices. To- okay, okay. That 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 personally, they may they may be. Buddhist, but when it comes to certain um, occasions in their life, they need to go to a Shinto shrine. What it kind of, um, I went hiking in Nepal once, and they had things that I couldn't figure out if they were Hindu or Buddhist. And I asked the guide, is that a Buddhist temple or a Hindu? And he'd just kind of shrug and walk away. <laughs> and a few days later, I read in my guidebook, only the uninformed tourist will try to distinguish Hinduism yeah. from Buddhism in Nepal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. And I almost feel that's what it's like in Japan with Shinto and Buddhism. Even though they do separate themselves, Yes, I'm Shinto, I'm Buddhist, it's, pretty, it's a pretty um, loose separation when it comes right down to it. Understand and... and- you don't want to spend a whole lot of uh, brain cells in trying to uh, 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 separate this this Gordian knot, so yeah. to speak, right? Um, there are some real external things, like Shinto people will put something on their uh, door, door frames, a really pretty knot that Buddhists don't. But it's like, well, I don't know. That hardly makes a big change. And um, Shinto... People will wear bells on their backpacks or on their, hmm. you know, so they walk around with bells. But as I'm up in northern Japan, Shinto country, it's also bear country. And all over the place, it's like, put on your bear bells. Oh. So it's like, are they really evil spirit bells or are they bear bells? Sure. And, you know, <laughs> so I'm walking around with, you know, the Shinto spirit bells on my backpack that has nothing to do with religion. It's just because there's bear. Sure. <laughs> when, when we're hiking. So it's, it's real. It's, it's not clear cut. And I kind of like that. I get that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is, is Buddhism, I get this impression. Tell me if I'm wrong. I get the impression that Buddhism is very ecumenical that is to say, within the Buddhist tradition, not interfaith. They're interfaith too. But mm-hmm. right now, let's just talk about ecumenical. So for instance, if you were to go to Sri Lanka and sit with the Theravadins, if if you were to go to Damsala and, and sit with the Tibetans or whatnot, uh, is there is there a, a free flow of thought and participation? or Or is it like... Christianity used to be most of the time, and now it only is some of the time, meaning that a Lutheran can now go to a Presbyterian church and not have to feel that they're, uh, you know, being disloyal or something. Um, I will say there's layers on that. And this is, I'll say only as much as I know, and this isn't part of my deep knowledge here. Sure. Uh, Especially in the United States, I can go to any Buddhist temple, and I'm welcomed. And the basic, um, the 
basic teachings of the Buddha are there everywhere. And they're pretty open to other people coming, other Buddhists coming and taking part in their celebrations and their services. Then I think when you get a little bit more, I'll say intellectual about it, there gets to be some um, deeper discussions. Yeah, debate. About sure. what it means. And a lot of that is because each, every place that Buddhists, Buddhism goes, they take on its, um, the country of, their adopted country's um, traditions, traditions, yeah, sure. beliefs, mm-hmm. that suddenly you get some real cultural differences. And it's more the difference between Japanese and Tibetans than Japanese Buddhists and Tibetan Buddhists. And as Buddhism comes to the United States, there's getting to be a real unique Western Buddhism that is getting more and more different than the countries where they originated. The Tibetan Buddhism is becoming less Tibetan and more Western. The Japanese Buddhism, less less Japanese and more Western. Uh, and in a big way that has taken taken root is I think every Western Buddhist now ordains women. And that is not true in that all the other countries. That is not true in all the other countries. Well, there you so, go. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, we have a variety, have had a variety of teachers from all of these different traditions come to the United States. And a couple of them, and don't ask me for names because none is coming to mind, but uh, you have this this uh, rather dubious tradition called crazy wisdom, hmm. where some of the teachers acted in very outlandish ways, and that may even be going on today. Is that a real Buddhist tradition, or is that just something that somebody made up one time so they could, uh, if they were men, they could just get a lot of ladies <laughs> or, uh, or, or, that, or, or drink um... a lot of whiskey? That's, I'll say, a hard, touchy subject right now. Uh, one of the largest Buddhist communities right now, it's hitting the news that there are improprieties by one of the leaders. Um, and let me stop you right there as you are deep in thought because I just got the signal we are down to the wire for this okay. week. But I'm dying to hear more of what you're saying. And I'm going to remember this question for the next week. It'll give me time to ponder how to answer it kindly. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, Shuji, it's been delightful to have you. And it's been delightful to speak. Wonderful. Uh, So I've been speaking with Reverend Shuji Valdin Mintzmeyer. Uh, she is the head teacher of the Soto Zen Buddhist group Just Sit right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Fred Stella. This is Common Threads, and you're listening to WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association.
The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Reverend Shuji Valdin Mintzmeyer. She's a local Buddhist priest here in Grand Rapids and uh, a good friend, someone that we've connected uh, together on multiple interfaith events over the years. And we've been talking about Buddhism and wanted to continue that conversation. A little bit about uh, Shuji. She is an ordained Dharma-transmitted Soto Zen Buddhist priest in the Katagiri lineage. She first began her Buddhist practice over 35 years ago and was ordained in 2011. She has training in Mount Shasta, in Oregon, in Iowa, and Fresno, California. She holds a B.A. in Fine Arts and Economics with a minor in Asian Studies and a Master's in Business from the University of Nebraska. She's a master tailor, one of only a few Buddhist priests to create traditional Soto Zen Buddhist priest garments. Shuji has been an entrepreneur most of her professional career. Presently, she is the sole proprietor of Zen Monkwear, a business providing monastic priest garments to international clergy and lay practitioners. And she currently is the head teacher in the Soto Zen Buddhist group Just Sit here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Shuji. Hi, Shuji. Great to be back. Yes, good to have you back. So last week, well, we, we spoke of, of a number of things. And the last question that I recall asking you was about what is often referred to as crazy wisdom. And, you know, I really didn't define that last week for, for everyone. So let's, let's see if between the two of us we can, we can make that happen. What uh, some teachers have said in the Buddhist tradition is that people need to learn lessons, and sometimes a Buddhist priest uh, or teacher has to act out in ways that might seem odd and even contrary to Buddhist moral teachings. And so they may be perhaps sexually active, or they may, they may um, involve themselves in, 
illicit drugs and alcohol and just do the kinds of things that you think should be in opposition to Buddhist principles, but they would defend themselves and saying, no, we have sort of transcended this need to uh, acknowledge these moral laws because we are what we are doing is not for our own enjoyment, it is to teach our students. How close to right am I on that? Um, I'll say there is scriptural precedent for that. Uh, one of our Mahayana, that's a um, type of Buddhism Soto Zen is part of, one of their main scriptures is something called the Lotus Sutra. And in that scripture, the Buddha, it's a uh, talk by the Buddha, he talks about a father coming home to his home and finding the house on fire. His kids are inside playing games, and he says, get out of the house, get out of the house. The kids are so busy playing games that they don't come out. So he lies to the kids. He says, I have some new carts for you. There's a deer cart and a goat cart, and I forget what the other cart is. And so the kids go, oh, yeah and run out. And in that it's called, in Buddhism it's called expedient means that if a father has to lie to his kids to get him out of the burning house, it's okay. There is also the Buddhist story about a monk who was, um, somebody asked him, since you're, uh, since you've reached enlightenment, I'm really paraphrasing this. Do you are you still held by the precepts? So you still have to follow the rules. He goes, no, I'm enlightened. He was a fox for a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a whole story about how he became not a fox, which I won't go into. So there's like in all of Buddhism, there's that middle way, that balance. Yeah, if your kids are lying are going to die in a fire, maybe you need to lie to them, get it out. And I used to always tell um my son that you know i can i can be crazy mom if you're going if you're going to run out in the parking lot mm-hmm. um there's a time when you have to be strong and active um uh, but you still cannot break the precepts understood you still have to behave yourself and i personally am not going to judge everybody blanketly, but I will say, if you're my teacher and you tell me if I have sex with you to get enlightenment, I will say, "Uh uh-uh, no, wrong. And if somebody else is telling me that, I will say that is wrong. Teachers are not divine and you cannot follow your teacher blindly. And this is what some people have done. Some people have done on both sides. I'm your teacher, you have to do whatever I say. And there's also people that he or she's my teacher. I do everything. If you're if you develop a severe illness and your teacher says you don't need to go to doctor, prayer and meditation will cure you of your cancer, you need to go to a doctor. Yes. You know, you know, maybe prayer and meditation will make healing easier. It may make dying easier but it's not a substitute. And no, expedient means okay for sometimes, but you, one of my, my teacher in Shasta Abbey always said, 
Buddhism is a religion for grown-ups. <laughs> you, it doesn't give easy answers, and you can't check your brain at the door. So if your teacher tells you something in your gut, in your heart, you know is wrong. You have to say no. And if your teacher's a good teacher, he or she will say, hmm, good. Have you seen people become so disillusioned because i know that this has happened actually we've we've discussed this on this on this program relatively recently with hindu gurus and some people have uh, a similar experience with someone who isn't really quite enlightened and they'll tell them to do something often it might be of a sexual nature mm-hmm. or whatnot and then they, they come to the conclusion, all of a sudden they, they wake up, they do reach a sort of enlightenment yeah. after perhaps years of abuse, uh, years of misguided uh, learning. Uh, they go, wait a minute, this is, this is not helping me. Uh, then they leave, and oftentimes they leave everything. Have you, have you ever known anybody who's been so wounded by that that they leave the Dharma because uh, a teacher has uh, ill-informed them or abused them in some way? I happen to know quite a few because I had a close relationship with a fairly abusive. He wasn't sexually abusive, mm-hmm. but there's many ways you can be abusive. Yes, there, there's sexual. certainly, yes. Um, yeah, and he'd always tell the story of uh, the chance of, being exposed to Dharma as if a blind turtle is swimming through the Indian Ocean happens to stick his head up uh, through a uh, piece of board with a knot hole and happens to stick up his head through the knot hole. And at one point I stood there and I said, yeah, and it's your job to whack it back down when it sticks it up. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, oh, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, no, I was serious. <laughs> um, some teachers... And I have theories, but they're just theories. Almost, it's like, to follow me is a privilege, Hmm. and you have to earn it, and you have to prove yourself over and over again. I think that's just, has a lot to do with insecurities, and people that leave, sometimes they come back, sometimes they find other teachers. It's sad when they leave but with any spiritual practice if you're there and if your heart's in it even if you leave there's still that um foundation the underpinning um doesn't mean it's bad sure i mean you it's like i left the lutheran church and now that i'm in my 60s i realize that gave me a really nice foundation. Yeah, I've, I've yeah, I've that. spoken to people who've who've left the spiritual yeah. path, and some of them are are very bitter, and some of them come away with they know that it wasn't all for naught. Yes. Okay. And I think even if you're bitter, and I still think there's something back there. Not saying that it's good to be abused and. And leave and be horrible. But there's something about that experience that, boy, this is sounding really awful as I say it out loud. 
But it's not all bad. You still have that spiritual base, and whether you build on it or are bitter about it, right? I, I maybe deep in my gut, I feel like humans are spiritual, and they need, and it's just spiritual experiences are sure. So last week we talked a bit about how Buddhism takes on so much of whatever culture it lands mm-hmm. in. So let's talk about Buddhism in the United States, because coincidentally, we're in the United States we right now. We are in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so what have you seen over your past 35 years that uh, would lead you to believe that uh, Buddhism is finding its identity as American? Um, the young people getting involved with it. Also, I it seems to be less, I'll say, the, the oh, wow, hip and cool, as it used to be in the 80s. Yes. The, oh, you're so zen. Yeah. <laughs> I am not zen. <laughs> I am so angry I could explode right now. <laughs> but in a way, that truly is zen. You, you know, if you're angry, be angry. Yes. Um. The 30-somethings that are involved with it now are kind of an acceptance that it's not it's not hip and cool, it's just how it is. And it's just like, yeah, this is helping. The meditation is good. And when I meditate in the morning, my days go better. Therefore, I'm going to meditate in the mornings. A comfortableness with it, with um, most people that I know that are involved with Buddhism didn't grow up in a Buddhist household. So it's adopted. And there seems to be an ease at bringing in their past spiritual practices with Buddhism. And it's not a big deal. They don't have to be anti what they used to be. It's just like, it's just part of who I am. They can still celebrate Christmas? They can still celebrate Christmas. They don't have to hate Catholicism. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of a, I used to be Catholic, now I'm Buddhist. And it all fits together. Uh, Much less defensive about it. And with that, I think they're going back to the basics. The young Buddhists, they talk about the Four Noble Truths. You know, uh, to be human is to suffer. You suffer from clinging. And you release, you, but there's a release from suffering. We do that by the Eightfold Path. And the, the three pure precepts, the first of which is live to benefit all beings. And they're going back to live to benefit all beings, not I have to sit for 40, 40 minutes without moving in this special posture and Therefore, I'll get enlightened. No, enlightenment is enlightening behavior by living to benefit all beings. And that's a lot more... I can talk about Japanese Buddhism because that's what I know about. That's a, The Japanese Buddhism is a lot more tradition. We do this, we have this, we celebrate our ancestors, and we do this well. In the United States, it's kind of back to, I'll say, the basics of Buddhism. Let me uh, just jump in here and mention that this is WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm your host, Fred Stella, and with me today is Reverend Shuji Valdine Mintzmeyer. She is an ordained Dharma-transmitted Soto Zen Buddhist priest uh, here in Grand Rapids, and we're talking about, of all things, Buddhism. Uh 
do you have connections with, here in this community specifically, do you have connections with people who are Japanese-American Buddhists? Or is it primarily American-born, Euro-American people, people whose ancestors came two, three generations ago? In this community, it's almost all Western. Mm-hmm. The monastery I go to in Iowa is a very Japanese monastery. Uh, the abbot is American, but every year, a Heiji monastery, the largest trained monastery in Japan, will send some of their young monks over to the United States to take back the United States way of practicing because Buddhism is kind of dying over there. Really? Yes. In Japan? Yeah. It's all tradition. It's a lot more tradition than um, you don't have... In the United States, you have temples where lay people come every Sunday morning and sit and do services, do meditation and services. In Japan, you don't really have a lay congregation like that. They come for celebrations, for weddings, funerals, um, memorial services. You don't have lay involvement. And so it's like, let's try to get young people to come and hang out at the Buddhist temple because it's cool. We'll go to the United States to find that. Do lay members in in the uh, in Japan, somebody that would acknowledge, yes, I am a Buddhist, mm-hmm. would you would you guess by and large that he or she might actually have a home practice or or not? Is it, or is it just sort of a a set of a set of beliefs that you loosely ascribe to, they, and and then you know go to the temple for. Uh, Buddha's birthday or something. They have home practices. Um, it's probably like saying, you know, do Christians that go to church on Sunday, do they have a home practice? I they mean, may or may they not. They may or may not. Right. Um, and it really depends on... But their temples are mainly for ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't come to the temple for weekly services or Dharma talks I, I as think much. W- Correct me if I'm wrong. One thing that might be different between uh, a, a Christian church here and a Buddhist temple there is that you go to a Christian church. Maybe you only go there once a week on Sunday morning, but chances are that priest or minister is going to try to encourage you to take your Christianity throughout the week, and whether that is saying the rosary on a daily basis or reading your Bible, or what, whatever, right? They, they would strongly encourage that. You're, you're suggesting, I, I gather, that maybe that isn't as encouraged by the, uh, the uh, priestly class or the, yeah. the, the, the teachers of Buddhism. That there. question, I don't have enough information to answer. Okay. And that's fine. Yeah. It, it, uh, I know traditionally Buddhism is, especially Soto Zen, the whole idea is you take it into your daily, daily, daily life, and you know it's. Um, and I can't really say whether they, the temples I visited while I was in Japan, didn't have a largely group. I see. Okay. But they yes. are trying to encourage that, and they're getting a lot of that encouragement from what's happening in the United States. It's like. 
oh, we can do that. We can offer that to our young people. There is a tremendous amount of interest that I see in meditation, particularly uh, that form of meditation called mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And I see it as being, having been extricated from the, the, the whole Buddhist school. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll take this part. We're not going to take the Eightfold Path. We're not going to dwell on the, the Four Noble Truths. We're, we're simply going to take meditation and encourage people to learn this meditation and to practice it, but nothing else. My question is this. Do you find people who start that way and then come to you saying, hey, you know what, I think something is missing. I think that, that I need something more than just this practice of meditation. Do you see that at all? Because I've, I've, I've spoken to people from the Hindu tradition who uh, learned t- transcendental meditation, which is supposedly absolutely secular. And they do that for a few yeah. years, and then they come to some Hindu teacher or group and say, hey, I, I think I need more than just this 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night of meditation. I, I want to connect to a tradition. I want to connect to ritual. I want to connect with, to, a, to uh, uh, something that, that has a moral law to it. I don't have a lot of... Let's see, I'm trying to think of different temples I've been involved with. Um, a little bit of that, but I have a lot more people that want to come and get the whole Zen experience because they think Zen is cool. And that if if they can become Zen, all problems will cease. <laughs> oh, is that how it works? <laughs> yes. If they can kind of get this, and they, you know, it's always like, I want to be Zen, you know. <laughs> and, like, and you tell them. Well, you know, um, one of the things I really encourage people, especially if I know they're on some sort of uh, mental health medication, is don't stop taking your meds when you start meditating. Ah, yes. Because <laughs> it's like, no, meditation will not, it will help depression, but it's not going to cure it. Not in itself, not in two weeks. Um, and that's something that a lot of people think, if I if, if I, meditate, I meditate, I don't need to meditate. I won't, I won't need my blood pressure meditation medication because I'll just be mellow and my blood it's like no no take your don't don't stop your medic don't talk don't stop meditation medications but also um meditation can do so much that if they do just want meditation I am not selfish in saying well you have to take the whole package if you just want to come to my just sit sendo and just sit and not do anything else if you don't want to chant you don't have to chant because there's you can get a lot out of that out of just being quiet being quiet for 20 to 40 minutes we sit for 40 minutes and it's always fun when you ring the bell and somebody goes oh 40 minutes already (laughs) it's like yes you know one thing i we didn't do last week uh because we ran out of time, but mm-hmm. we have just about uh, three or four minutes. Tell us about your group and tell us about how people can get a hold of you if they would like to experience sitting with you. 
Okay, I have a very small group, and we meet in my home at this point, and it's um, it's quiet, and that's what I like about it. We do 40 minutes of sitting, and on Tuesday nights, we do a world peace ceremony. We do a Japanese chant and uh, send it out to for the peace of the world. And on Wednesday mornings, we have... Uh, we just chant the Heart Sutra, which is your basic Mahayana all-around morning chant. I sit for 40 minutes, chant, and then people usually go home. Sometimes people stay around and chat a while. No walking um, meditation? No. Mm-hmm. No. If I somebody asked if we could do two 40-minute and walking in between, I said, well, if you want to stay for 80 minutes, that's fine. But then at the end of 40 minutes, everybody leaves, so (laughs) (laughs) I guess I shouldn't give them a choice. Um, No, because we only sit one 40-minute meditation. And when is that? Uh, Tuesday nights at 6 o'clock and Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. And uh, I'm on Facebook as Just Sit Soto Zen, and my website is justsitsotozen.org. Oh, great. And you are right here in Grand Rapids. Right here in Grand Rapids. Excellent. Excellent. What about um, Buddhist holidays? Do you have anything special for that? Uh, The biggest Buddhist holiday is um, Buddha's Enlightenment Day. Mm -hmm. That's in December, isn't it? December. And we celebrate a whole week because according to uh, tradition handed down, December 1st, Buddha said, I'm going to sit here until I'm enlightened. And the after sitting there for eight days, when the morning star came up, he saw the morning star and he got instant enlightenment. And so we celebrate this in good Buddhist way by um, sitting for about 13 hours a day for seven days. Really? Yeah. Good for and you. And end it with a meal. Wow. That's... Yeah. So not a lot of beginners probably at that. No, and I, but you you don't have to sit all seven days. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> After day four, it's kind of nice because when you sit quietly, you start going blah, blah, blah to yourself. Uh-huh. And on day four, it's like, I cannot listen to myself anymore. I cannot believe how boring I am. And then you finally can get quiet. It's interesting for uh, Buddha's birthday you follow the Western calendar on that. Is that correct? Um, Buddha's birthday, different traditions celebrate. I'm sorry, I'm in, oh. I'm in Enlightenment Day. Enlightenment. Yeah, I don't know why. Some, Sometimes it's, um, I think it's just for ease. Uh-huh. Different traditions will do it differently. So okay. Some people have him sitting 49 days, and so there's a 49-day celebration. Wow. We don't, they don't sit all 49 days. Okay. But not as intensely. Sure, sure. Um, Buddha's birthday is either in April or May, depending upon, and that's a much more joyous occasion. I, I would suspect. <laughs> the difference between like Christmas and Good Friday. Kind of, sort of. Christmas and Easter. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, well, uh, Shuji, it's been wonderful having you both today and last week. Thank you so much for your time with us. It has been a pleasure. 
You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Reverend Shuji Valdin Mintzmeyer. Please join us again next week here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Thank you.